Good day, dear listeners. Steve Prida here with the Management Blueprint Podcast. And today's guest is TK Apley, a former Navy SEAL and currently the president of Vayu Aerospace Corporation that builds affordable American drones for cargo and or sensor transport over difficult terrains and, and other terrains. So welcome to the show, uh, TK. Thanks for having me, Steve. Oh, it's exciting to have uh, have you here. Uh, we've never had anyone running a drone company, and this is such a a, a big trend uh, and such an interesting, exciting thing, especially for us lay people. So I, I can't wait to dig into that. But before we go there, I'd like to learn about what's been your journey. How did you become a CEO of of Vio Aerospace? Well, actually, I'm the president of Vio Aerospace. So I you know, kind of getting into the tech thing. I was, a, as you said, I was a Navy SEAL for 20 years. Uh, and the last couple of years I was a Navy SEAL, I kind of went to the tech side of the house. I, I went kicking and screaming at the time. But uh, when I got down there, I, you know, I kind of fell back in love with it. I was always the guy that when the computers first came out, I, I, I figured out how to use it and things like that. I was a communicator. And then since, since I've retired, I've been very fortunate to uh, be part of a number of companies where along the way, you know, I learned a lot about tech and then I, I have ever increasing responsibility uh, and it's led me to where I'm at with Bayou today. That's that's awesome. Uh, so tell you a little bit about uh, your framework. So in, in the pre-interview, we had the conversation about your management blueprint. So this podcast is always, I'm always digging for those business frameworks that help people accelerate their businesses. And uh, we talked about something that we call the empathy with accountability framework. So what do you mean by this and how does it work in practice? Well, I think you can't be a leader unless you understand that every day, nothing's about you. It's about all the folks that, that work with you, for you, however you want to, however you want to. I don't talk about, you know, like somebody's like, oh, he's at the top of the pyramid or the ladder and, and a leadership thing. I think it's more elastic than that, where it's, um, we, we work together and everybody has a specific you know, tasks they're supposed to do. It goes back, like when I was a SEAL, there was an old Vietnam guy talking about his boss. And one of the things he said was, you know, his job is to be the decision maker, right? He's very good at making decisions. Somebody was very good at being a communicator. Somebody was very good at being a machine gunner. Somebody was very good at being a medic. He was good. He was a good decider, Mm -hmm. right? And I think as a leader, once you say, hey, I recognize the, the, the contribution and the intelligence and integrity that everybody has, you're not, you're not like, I'm not here and they're not there. We're all working together to solve these big problems. And as a leader, I've, one of the number one traits that you have to have is you have to have empathy, all right? Because you have to be able to say, somebody is in a certain place at a certain time, and I have to be able to put myself you know, somewhat in their shoes. And so I can help to solve the problem. But if you just have empathy, then we all sit around and we hug all day and we don't get anything done, right? And so you have to have the accountability with it. And those are the tougher conversations, but they're great when you combine them with empathy. Like, hey, I think we spoke about this earlier. We hire somebody and I think we think we're getting something and there's a certain thing they don't know, right? Well, okay, a lot of businesses will get out. We made a mistake. My thing is to bring that person in and say, hey, look, we thought you would know this and that's partly on us to do that. So we're going to put everything in your way to get you properly trained. All right. And there's the empathy piece, right? We're going to work with you. We're going to bring you up to speed. We're going to invest in you. The accountability piece is like, Hey, but at a certain time, at a certain place, we need, we need a result. 
right? Because we're running a business, we're not running a charity, right? And so we need to have, we need to have both because <clears throat> people work best when they have goals and guidelines and empathy and accountability helps to set up and manifest itself in goals and guidelines. So how do you draw the line when, what, where is the line to stand when you no longer, it's no longer the empathy that is dominant, but it's the accountability that becomes focus, uh, that comes into the focus. Well, I think, you know, it, again, the accountability piece is, a, is giving people a timetable. It's saying, hey, by this date, we have to be done. And so <laughs> I was, I, I, when I speak to other crowds and especially like leaders and CEOs of businesses, it's like, hey, if you're going to let somebody go, it should never be a surprise to them when they get let go. Because if it is, you didn't do enough along the way to try to coach them up, to try to get them in the center of the room and things like that, right? And some people self-select, right? They, you know, they, they're like, okay, I'm just not getting this and they'll self-select. And, but if you do have to let somebody go, and I, I don't take that lightly, I, I just, it, it's anybody that likes getting, that says they're good at firing people, I have a problem with because it's, you're materially changing someone's life. Right. Somebody materially changed their life to say they want to come work in the organization that you're at. And if you have to let them go, you're in a negative way, making another material change to their life. And if you don't take that into account, I'm not saying I'm not going to do it, but I'm not going to do it lightly. Right. Because it, there's that's the compact you should have. I, 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 I Here's my example. If as a business, the business says, hey, we got to let somebody go. You're going to walk into their office on a Friday or 30, whatever day it is, and you're going to say, hey, it's not working out. This is your last day. You're going to lock them out of their computer. You're going to take away all their corporate stuff and you're asking them to pack up a box and you're going to leave. But yet, if somebody wants to leave of their own accord to go work somebody work somewhere else, we have this like anachronistic view that they should give us two weeks notice. Why is that? Right. I mean, I like it, there's there's never been a balance there. Right. And what I try to do is I say I, I try to create the balance, whether it's in the personal relationships or how we build the corporation from, you know, making it um, a psychologically safe space to work. And I'm a big believer in that where everybody's opinion is valued. Uh, we might we might joke around and make fun of you a little bit. Every now and again, if you have an idea that's like way out left field somewhere. But most of the time when people come in, their, their ideas to to the leader are not fully formed. It's because the leaders feel the vision about what's going on at the company is huge <laughs> and theirs is more narrow. And if you, if, when people say that in order to help them grow, go, hey, that's a, that's real with what you know, with where you're at, that's a really great answer. But what if I told you this and start adding things to them? Because now your, your ability to give away the accountability, right? I can't, as a leader, I can't delegate responsibility, right? Every day of the week, it's mine but I can give all the accountability for as much as I possibly can and a little bit more to everybody because that's what's gonna help everybody grow. I give it to my direct reports, they give it to theirs and on you know, on out through the full extension of the business. So uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that uh, it's upon the leader to train their people to provide all the resources that they need to be able to execute. I'm just wondering whether that is really empathy or that's just part of the job that you have to Obviously, you hired someone that you believed could be a good employee for you, and you have to empower them, and they have to right. give you tools of the job, and you have to give, uh, you know, let them absorb it. I don't know if that is empathy for me, um, but uh, maybe I'm missing the point. 
Well, no, I, you know, I think it's the size of the business too. I mean, you look like Amazon hires, like I think the number, latest number is they hire about 330 employees a day, right? So at what level, you know, what level does Jeff Bezos have impact on throughout the organization, right? How does that, you know, with, you know, hundred plus thousand people that work for Amazon, for example, how do we, you know, you're doing that in smaller business units, but what culturally do you think? I, I have a small business that I run. And I have direct impact over all the employees because I know every one of them, right? And so as the, the, I think where that change of family is the wrong word, but you understand what I'm saying. There's a, there's a closer bond because there's not that many of us and we're, we're all in it together. As the company grows, and I, don't, and I think it's different for every company, there's a tipping point somewhere that says, hey, now we have to become more autocratic. That's why, it's why human resources manuals exist. Because when it's 10 people, we can all talk it out. When it's 200 or 500, now you've got a, you know, thing. And I think we, I said this when we were talking uh, the other day is I, I like to build standards-based organizations, right? I always say knowledge isn't king, execution's king, right? So how do I get to a position where everybody is concerned about executing the goals and we're all, you know, we're all kind of walking the same journey. I always there's a great saying that says, hey, just because you're on the same bus doesn't mean you're going to the same place. Right? And I want, as an organ organizationally, there's what I say and there's what people hear. And I want them to hear what my intent is because that helps with the execution and everything else. And so you get people on that bus and we're all going to the same destination. That becomes much more difficult as the organization scales. Right? And you, you try to be really protective of the culture as a leader, or you should, I think. And how do I do that when you go from 10 people to 100 or from 100 to 500? Where is that? And those become the bigger challenges for leaders as they scale and grow a company. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's all about the culture. You want to create a culture where people feel like that there is caring, the leader cares for them and then models the behavior. And then everyone else will hopefully model the behavior of, of, or if they don't, then they don't fit the culture and maybe there's a shift. Um, they, I'm wondering. They feel a value, right? There's a value thing there. Like they feel that their their contribution is valued every day of the week. Because when I, I when I speak to groups of executives, especially in my age group, what I call you know 55 to dead, it's largely who runs America, right? If you go and you look at most of the companies out there, your Fortune 500, it's, it's people in their 50s and, and older that are running it. And I've more than once I've heard a CEO say to me. Uh, just all these, and they'll say, they'll say millennials, which they really don't mean millennials because the oldest millennials in their forties already, they mean the kids that are just out of school, like at 22 to 30 years old. I call them pre-family, pre-family employees. Right. And they're like, oh, I just can't deal with them. I'm like, well then retire. Right. Because they're, they're there, they're going to work and how you, everybody's equal. They're not the same. So how I approach somebody, one person is not how I approach another person to get a result. And that's part of the empathy is I, I've got to meet people where they're at. And when I was growing up, you know, when I was in my 20s, 30 some years ago, it was a different culture. Like we, it was pre-internet. Um, you did, you, I'm in the last generation of kids that went to college and got a typewriter instead of a computer. And if you wanted knowledge, you had to go to the library or more importantly, you had to believe the adults. It's almost like the native American culture where they really value the chief because he's had more trips around the sun. And so is he smarter? Not necessarily, he's more experienced, right? And so you had to put your trust and faith in other people to tell you. Now, 
you know, when I do speaking engagements and somebody kind of the tail end of the introduction is I was a SEAL, I can see people pick up their phones and they're typing my name in to see if I'm full of crap. And they should, right? I mean, there's a, that, you know, but that's where we're at now. And so what a, what a 28 year old, 25, 28 year old wants from a work day is different than somebody in their forties. Yeah. But I want, I want both of them. Right. Yeah. And I have, we have, a, I have some, some of our artisans that fabricate the, uh, fabricate our aircraft. We have one gentleman that's, you know, 59, 60 years old, and he works directly with the guy that's 25. They both have two completely different ideas about how some of the problems should be solved. The 25-year-old is more empirical. This is what I learned in school. And the 60-year-old is more, hey, all my years of experience. The magic is when they both work together and they blend those ideas to make something better that neither one of them had imagined earlier that day. And that's why it's so important that they work as a team so that they can uh, cooperate and you have a culture which brings them together. So I'd I'd like to shift gears here a little bit and talk about your business. You mentioned uh, your fabricators. Um, you, you know, Vayu, your company is manufacturing uh, drawers, which is kind of uh, uh, fairly new things. You call them computer with wings. Mm-hmm. So, so what are the skills required to grow a computers with wings company? So I think when you when you think about, I always look, what's the process, right? And it's, if we're going to build it, what do I need to basically just build it, right? Selling it's one thing, but what do I need to build the aircraft? Right. I, I guess I need design people. I need the hardware in this case is the airframe. Right. So I, we have uh, our head of fabrication is an amazing young engineer that is constantly working to make the aircraft lighter, more aerodynamic and all those things. Right. And we're and we get cleaner the, the, the more we do it. Right. Some of it is we have good software, but most of us are really smart people. Right. So it takes a, it takes a fabrication team to build the airframe itself. Then on the other side, you have the software team and those are all, they're aerospace guys. And I have an amazing, my director of, uh, uh, of software is, he's an amazing, he's got his doctorate in aerospace engineering. And, you know, every day of the week, there's something that we're trying to be additive to the process, right? From a software. So, you, you know, you've got the hardware and software and then in between, you've got the integration piece. Right? And that's the person that brings all that together, makes sure that, hey, we've got the, we've got the fuselage and we've got everything now. The lift fans for the V, one of the drones is a, is a vertical takeoff and landing drone. The, the lift fans to get off the ground are integrated with the engine and all the electronics and everything like that. And it's that process of, of teamwork. And it's great. Like when I'm in my office and I'm, you know, I'm, doing, I'm doing spreadsheet stuff or you know, doing business related stuff, the minute I start to hear uh, the CNC machines go or things going on. I want to go out in the shop floor and I want to see what they're doing. All right. Because it's, it's a, it's a living, breathing thing. The drones that you made five years ago, aren't what we're making today. And we're imagining what we're going to do five years from now. So how right? are these drones changing? Uh, what kind of drones are there? And, and how so are we have our family of drones starts with uh, what we call the G1, which is a vertical and take takeoff and landing drone. It's, it's got a 13 foot wingspan. And with cargo and everything, it weighs about 25 kilograms. Uh, it'll stay in the air for about eight hours to 10 hours, and it'll fly roughly 450 to 500 miles, depending on you know environmental variables and things like that. So th- that drone in itself, either you know you can fly in a big donut and put a camera on it and do overwatch, or it can do long haul delivery. All right, and so um, people that typically you know. In that class, that drone might, those normal drones will stay aloft for three or four hours, and some people want much longer duration, and that's what we can provide them. 
We make a, a large quadcopter that with cameras and sensors on it can stay aloft for about 70 minutes. Uh, and the, the industry standard kind of drones for that are about, they stay aloft for about 20, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And um, we're developing um, a, an interior drone that we call the Knuckle Buster, which is a little, it's about uh, eight to 10 inch square with counter rotating fans on it. So you have eight lift fans. It's uh, more of a law enforcement drone. You get inside and, and do those types of things. And we have accessory kits that we're developing for that. And then we have another one called the Pugilist that is a little bit bigger than that and a little bit more industrious. And um, we, we're working out with uh, potential customers some of the use cases for that right now. Um, and every day of the week, it's it's a blast to go into work because what we did even six months ago when I got here is not what we're doing today. All right. And I think that's the is unleashing people and saying, hey, why? You know, because my big question when I first got here was, OK, why are we doing it this way? I wasn't doing it to be argumentative. I was doing it to get people to think that maybe just because we've always done it that way isn't the way we should be doing it. Mm -hmm. And once people understood that, you know, I was serious about productive change, um, amazing things started happening, right? We've done a, we've done a food delivery uh, demonstration in Northern Virginia. We've done a couple shows we, where we've flown the aircraft at one and, you know, typical then in conference center type, type shows. And we have, we have great feedback and great response to what we're building. So how is uh, how is value different from other drone companies? How competitive is this market? The well, it, the quadcopter market is is pretty competitive. And I but one of the differentiators that we're using is uh, we have all American. We actually let me say it this way: we don't have Chinese parts. When President Trump was the president, he signed an executive order for government use for drones used by the government that they cannot have any Chinese parts in them for um, anything that moves data. Right. And so then that that became part of the uh, that became part of the budget, you know, part of the statute. And so we're working with that with that standard. Uh, and there are a number of companies that for most for most enterprise bases, it doesn't matter whether they use a DJI Chinese drone or use one of ours. I think in certain industries like the energy industry or, or industries where they what they what they want to take pictures of or what they want to use sensors for within their industry is their IP. And they don't want to potentially give it away, so they'll they'll buy a U.S. drone. The other differentiator we have is usually in class. Our drones stay aloft longer than other drones, <clears throat> and so that it's out. But the non for us, the non Chinese parts are the big differentiator, along with the amount of time we can stay aloft. Interesting. So definitely, these are big uh, big differentiators. Mm -hmm. So where is this market going? What are drones going to be used in uh, in a couple of years? Do you what do you see? I get this question all the time where people will say, hey, can, can you guys do, fly this mission, all right? And so there is two parts to the question. One is, what is the aircraft capable of? And secondarily, what does the FAA allow us to do, mm -hmm. all right? And so I, the, the assumption when I first started contemplating building this company and to do is that the FAA was combative with the drone industry. The more I've talked to the FAA and spent time with them, they're not combative, but just like everything else, they want to ensure safety, right? Big insurance companies want drones to do roof inspections, right? For example, one of the, one of the biggest insurance companies in the country, I was talking to their head of uh, unmanned systems, and it's one of the single largest expenses they deal with every year is paying for adjusters that have fallen off roofs. 
And so they want to, they want to get, so for me, like, I, again, I say, I solved the transportation problem. They'll wait for my drone to get certified by the FAA. And then in the process, they're looking for a camera that is, or looking for software and a camera that's sensitive enough to detect hail damage on a roof. Right. So it's a, there's the thing, the FAA has to make sure that in a crowded airspace, meaning manned flight, other drones, everything else that goes on, that we, you can do it safely. Right. And so when you fly over people, buildings and, and roads, they want to ensure that these things aren't just going to fall out of the sky. And because most of them are or, or they're almost always controlled some way by a radio frequency or a cellular frequency. If you lose that, what happens? Right. And that's part of that airworthiness thing and everything like that. So as we walk through that process and the industry matures, one people get more used to seeing drones, right? One of the big, you know, I think probably one of the biggest concerns is is this thing surveilling me? Well, I don't know. What is what is that for sensors? Who's on the back end? But just like everything else, people worry about the drones surveilling them, but they don't worry about their cell phone. Yeah which is probably one of the biggest, most intrusive surveillance devices ever devised. And we, and we don't, we, you know, we've moved past that. I think as this matures, we'll do the same thing with the drones. It's utilitarian, right? Whether it's, you know, Amazon, Walmart, any of the big delivery places are trying to manage and figure out a way to do that, right? And do it safely. And more importantly, I mean, think about this. I want you for the next month, and I don't know how it is at your house, but at mine, there's stuff from Walmart showing up every day or from Amazon showing up every day on the front door. How much of it weighs more than a pound? Right? Very, very low. Actually, about 80, 83 to 85% of all the packages delivered weigh less than a pound, mm-hmm. right? which is why they try to bundle and things like that. But we're impatient as Americans. And so, no, send them in all the different boxes you can. I don't care. I don't want to wait one more minute. With all that stuff being less than a pound, do we want the the Amazon driver to pull into my neighborhood and walk to all the houses at one time, or do you just want a drone to go and drop it off? And how are people going to get used to that? What's, you know, what's the adoption technology, right? And it's as a drone manufacturer, I'm concerned about safety. Like if we use a tethered system to drop a package in somebody's front yard, what if, you know, miscreant comes out and wants to yank on the tether and pulls the drone out of the sky and it lands on them. Now it's my fault. Right. These are all things that the manufacturers and the FAA, for example, are, are contemplating. And how do we do that safely? All right. So the industry will mature as quickly as we can be safe and have great airworthiness um, so that we can all become certified, so to speak, by the FAA. Right. And like I said, they, whenever I talk to the FAA, they're like, we want you guys to fly. We want, the, we want this thing, but we have to be safe. And I totally agree. I'm in total agreement with them. Right. It's just how do we get there as an industry and how do we get there quickly? And I mean, sounds, you think, go ahead. It sounds like a little bit like the autonomous cars uh, debate. Yes. The cars are available. We could be driving them or they could be driving us. But who's going to be responsible if there's an accident and, and therefore there's no breakthrough? So is this similar for drones that you've got the technology, but uh, the regulation hasn't figured this out or the regulators haven't figured it out? how it can be managed and therefore we just have to wait i think it's i think because it's nascent i think the difference between autonomous cars and uavs are that we have almost a we have a hundred year history of physically driving a car and especially in america we have a love affair with automobiles right we always have uavs by design are unmanned hence the u right and uh so people they're used to it 
but now it's just a safety issue more than anything else, right? And I think that's the, you know, I think with, with a car, for example, one of the worries I heard recently on, you know, a television show or something was that people are going to, instead of getting an Ubers, they're going to have their autonomous car and they're just, when they're drunk, they're just going to sit in there and hands off. So I'm not really driving the car. Well, is that the intent? No, probably not. But those, those are real things, right? Because now people will get behind the wheel when they've, when they've had something to drink and they'll drive and be unsafe. Again, everything comes back to safety, whether it's an automobile, but especially with UAVs. So how do UAVs actually navigate? Because I know that planes have their certain paths where they can go in the sky yeah. and they have to keep certain distance between each other. But is is it the same for uh, for drones? Are there well, U- UAVs? UAVs typically have a you know in in normal settings they have a 400 foot altitude limit, right? So you keep them you keep them below the traditional uh, civil aviation and commercial aviation. And but how do they bypass each other? Are there similar rules that they this way or that? Drones typically, we always say it's like there's two ways to do it. You either get certified and you start getting waivers to fly what we call beyond visual line of sight. Because right now, unless you get a waiver, as a drone pilot, you need to be able to see the drone. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, for us, we, we're going to need to get waivers because our drone will fly, will fly the better part of 500 miles. And you're not, you lose the value if I got to follow behind it in a truck while it's flying, right? I mean, that's, you might as well do what. I might, if I'm going to inspect a pipeline, for example, with a camera, I might as well just physically inspect the pipeline if I have to drive. Of course. All right. So the, our drones, our big drone in particular is autonomous, meaning we, it's a pre-programmed flight plan uh, and it, it executes. Now, is, there's pilot oversight and they're watching the flight. They have a ground control station and they can take control of the airplane uh, as needed. But it's an autonomous flight. And the primary communications is cellular. Uh, with a backup and satellite for Iridium. And so most of the systems, we like to be redundant. We have two different GPSs on the, on the airframe, on an airframe and like that. So in, you know, one of the questions we get when somebody's like, hey, I've got an oil field in Texas, but my office is in Missouri. Can I fly the airplane from Missouri and see what's going on? Absolutely. Right. You'll just have, you know, we'll have a couple of people that are, they're like technicians that'll take the airframe out, get it all set up, get it ready to go. When it's ready to go, they'll communicate with the pilot. And from wherever remote station he is or she is, they can launch the airframe and monitor it because they've got a pre-programmed flight plan. So, so how is the air traffic control uh, being done? Well, right now it's the air traffic control is uh, keep keep the drones low and keep them away from traditional people. You know where tr- where traditional civil and commercial aviation fly. But they're not going to crash crash into manned uh, aircraft. But what about other drones? Would they not crash into each other? They could. There's software out there now. There's a few companies that are building software that if you have a camera, you know, you have your, your camera on your drone and that software, it will pick up other, you know, other objects in the sky. And it, it, it is so sensitive that some of once you types a, a certain type of drone, it'll say, oh, that's a Mavic. That's this kind. That's an X. That's an X code system. That's this. Right. And then there's um, there's ADSB, which is the like the the system of it's a, like a beacon almost right and so there's adbsb in and AD, AD, abds out right there's a, some restrictions on abds out right now because the faa is still trying to figure out hey how do we manage since, since civil and commercial aviation switching largely from the radio station hopping model they're, they're starting to try to go to a gps model it'll allow for more 
more aircraft in a confined space and still be safe. They're not there yet with the drones in my mind. Right? And everybody's, again, it's, a, it's an immature industry and we're trying to figure that out. So what's your vision, TK, for the unmanned area vehicles industry five years out? What are we going to see? Much like everything else that solves a manpower problem, right? Today, for example, if a company like, you know, if their power company is inspecting power lines, they put a helicopter out there and there's an observer that takes pictures and everything that as they fly past every one of the high tension lines, right? Five years from now, that's going to be a drone or two years from now, that'll be a drone that's going to do that, right? Uh, pipeline inspections, things like that. Um, security. If now it's, you know, you send out, if, if you have a, a perimeter of security and all of a sudden there's an intrusion, currently you might put two people in a car and send them out, send them out to that place. In the future, you'll just launch a drone and send it out there. Right? Mm -hmm. So you're cutting down on, on manpower. Even um, one of the, one of the uh, sister companies in our portfolio does drone mapping software. So they, for construction and everything like that, drones have been used for a long time in construction. Right? And the software that uh, our sister company, Identified Technologies, has, let's just say that you're doing a, you're moving a lot of dirt, like you're building some, hey, I, I'm going to, here's 25 cubic yards of dirt. Well, that software, we put a rope around it, so to speak, and that software will allow, will tell you, nope, it's only 22 and a half cubic yards, go get, go get more, right? And so you can be very finite in what you do. And so all of I think the limit of what a, what autonomous vehicles can do is going to be the limit of the imagination of the software and the sensors that are going to be put to, to use, right? And, and I said it when we started, I solved the transportation problem, right? Everybody looks at what the drone can do, but I, I, tell me what sensor you want on my drones and we'll figure out a way to affix it to the drone, right? And I think that's really once it's, it's not so much the drone itself. Yes, we're going to have to do safety of flight and airworthiness tests and become certified and we should. Right? just like everybody else in the aviation industry. But when you ask where it's going, it's going to be the lim limit of somebody's imagination for what a sensor could do. Mm -hmm. And then the drone just is going, to, is going to provide the platform for that sensor to be able to work. So when do you expect Amazon to be delivering packages to people with drones? I don't know. I, you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm not that closely aligned with what goes on every day, but I, I know that Amazon, from reading and just reading in the news, that Amazon let go or downsized their uh, staff that's working on the problem. Right. So I don't. I don't know. I, I know Walmart is putting a considerable amount of effort into drone deliveries. You know, it's a nascent program, and they've got partners and everything they're helping out. So I, the drone delivery thing to me is again, it comes back to safety of flight. How quickly can the industry and the FAA align to certify to certify aircraft? To fly over buildings, people, and roads. All right, and we get it done. Uh, no, of course we will. All right, but again, it's like it's the FAA, and the FAA can't get mad at the industry because we don't have, we don't, we're not, we're not there sometimes yet, depending on what company it is, and we can't get mad at the FAA because they want everything to be safe. All right, we all have our role to play here, and the the quicker we can, we can put aside our differences, you know, and and I always joke the uh, having worked for the government, you know. When you work for the government, you don't you don't care how much things cost because you're, you just want the problem solved. Whereas as a business as a business leader, business owner, uh, everything to me is about hey, I got to manage. I'm managing my cost against my risk reward, right? Where, how much is it going to cost me to achieve a goal, right? And I try to apply the 80-20 rule. 
because you know better sometimes is not good all right and so a lot of days we just need to be really good and i think as an industry we're, we're all getting there and uh, it's a fun it's fun to be part of a, a, you know a, an, an adolescent industry probably is the best word to describe it it's, it's past yeah. the toddler stage it's an adolescent industry and there's some there's some companies out there doing amazing things with drones yeah so definitely uh, we are going to keep or i definitely going to keep an eye on on uh, Vayu Aerospace Corporation. So TK, if people would like to learn mm -hmm. about your drones and what you can do for them and what you can manufacture, uh, fabricate for them, uh, and if they would like to reach out to you because they have some questions that we haven't answered, where can they find you? You can go to vioaerospace.com um, and we're there. Uh, if you want to go check out our parent company and the great stuff that they do, you can go to alpine4.com and find the value aerospace tab and go there um or alternatively um everyone can reach out to me on linkedin awesome so so definitely check it out so vayuaerospace.com is the the company's website and alpine4.com is the parent company so thank you for coming on the show uh, tk uh, i really enjoyed this a uh, great uh, great information that we have not heard here before and for our listeners, if you enjoyed it, please uh, stick around and come back next week. And don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to YouTube. Thank you. Thanks, Steve.